children can be so mean to each other in ways that make adults on the internet look tame. And I live in some of the darker corners of the internet. Derek Bolt, this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it One Glorious Anthem? Hello, listeners, and welcome to This Is Your Mixtape, a podcast where, every episode, we take a close look at someone's life as told through five songs. I'm your host, Michael Collins, a kind of whirligig that podcasts. Before we begin today's show, I'll take 17 seconds to remind you that Megaphonic, the network we call home, has a Patreon now, and for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the production of this show and others. One of several rewards is access to bonus content. In a bonus clip from this episode, you can hear Derek analyze my personality, for example. Check out patreon.com slash megaphonic to learn more. On with the show. Today we're chatting with Derek Bolt. Derek Bolt is an architect, competitive bodybuilder, and a gay porn star based in Washington, D.C. He's also one of my best friends, which makes this episode a little special and a little bit out of the ordinary. Derek and I have a great chat about Taekwondo versus Boy Scouts, being locked in your own mental closet, the ins and outs of non-monogamous relationships, bodybuilding, and coping with loneliness. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining me today, Derek. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so most people haven't ever talked to a porn star, or so they think. A lot of people who do any form of sex work tend to keep it quiet because there's a lot of stigma against it in society at large. But I know that it's not even your primary occupation. You're an architect like Monday to Friday. So just as a way for listeners who might have never listened to a porn star say anything interesting before, have you ever faced negative judgment because of your side gig doing porn? Surprisingly, not nearly as much as you might think. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, um, my job actually does not know about it. And the few people who I have known who found out at my job have been relatively cool with it. But they were also in my same millennial age group. They weren't anyone with a position of power over me. And I'm not entirely anxious to test that theory, <laughs> even sure. though my current boss is an angel. Do you think that that is a generational thing that most people who are millennials or younger wouldn't think it's such a big deal? I do think that there's a generational difference. I wouldn't say that it's strictly just an age thing, though, because I definitely have come across people who are older and are very cool with it and people who are even younger than me who think, oh, my God, how could you do something like that? And I know that you're very online. You have something like 65 or 70,000 followers on Twitter. 84. <laughs> and I know that you're very um, politically engaged and you have several intellectual interests that you do tweet about. It's not just a feed of like dicks and asses. Have you ever like had people online try to shut you down because of that? I mean, everybody tries to shut everybody down online and it doesn't really matter how they do it. Um, although I do love it when they try and say, Oh, you're a porn star, so you can't have an opinion. I'm like, great. Um, that has no bearing on what we're discussing. You have not even looked at any supporting documentation of the argument you're trying to make. So why are you resorting to an ad hominem attack? But people don't seem to realize that porn stars are 
just any random person. And some of us are incredibly well-spoken and bright. Yeah. And it's not like something that you put on your business cards. <laughs> well, actually I do have business cards. <laughs> yes. As soon as I said that, I remembered that. <laughs> uh, it's also becoming far more common, especially because there's now there's studio porn, which has always been kind of the gold standard of, Oh my God, you, you sat down and you said, I want to be a porn star. You applied to a company and you went and you flew to Las Vegas or Los Angeles or San Francisco and you shot porn. <gasps> but nowadays there's all of these other porn adjacent things like sexting or OnlyFans or just a million different things that fall into sex work. Um, and so the number of people you know who have done some porn related activity has probably increased drastically in the last 10 years. So let's take it back to the beginning, because uh, obviously you weren't born doing porn, although <laughs> you may have been born to do porn. <laughs> I was born naked, and that's a start. Absolutely. So uh, why don't we talk about your early years? What's the first song that we have? So the first song we have is Walking on Broken Glass by Ann Lennox. So the reason I picked this song is actually not because of my earliest memory of it, but because of an interesting milestone that it represents. It was actually the first song my mom ever saw me dance to. Oh, yes? Mm -hmm. I must have been, oh God, like three years old, um, maybe four, somewhere in that very early childhood age, um, back when we still lived in Oregon, um, which is not where I was born. I was born in the hellhole of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. <laughs> Apologies to anyone listening from Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> they probably agree. <laughs> so you're in Oregon. You're like a toddler or preschooler. Mm -hmm, something like that. And it's just, it's an interesting milestone to me because I, I am not an incredibly musical person. I appreciate music, but I have no intellectual connection with it. And I have no, I have no emotional ability to generate music. I appreciate it and I enjoy it and it creates emotions in me, but I have no emotional ability to respond to it. For my mom, seeing me dance to this song so early on is very fascinating to me. Do you have any theories as to what is in this song that you might have been responding to? It's it's an interesting song because it's got a number of different emotions going on. You can dance to it, but it's also a very painful song about, you know, emotional torture. <laughs> Yeah, but when you're three or four or whatever toddler... You're not listening to the lyrics, you, no. <laughs> you don't understand the lyrics. So I think a lot of it comes down to the, the music of it, which the, I would say that the beat itself is actually fairly upbeat. Yeah. It's a, it's a happy-sounding song. But there's some something elegant about the music as well. The the piano figures. I remember the music video. I was really into the song when I was a child as well. I'm a little bit older than you, so I remember it better. But... Um, I can remember the music video was very sort of 18th century French. And I think she's wearing a powdered wig. And there's a there's a party of people who dressed up very period and fancy. And it fits in with the, um, the piano figure that goes throughout it. And I always thought it was a very, it has it has a beat, but it also has a, a sort of an elegance to it, which I thought found very appealing when I was young. You know, I've actually never seen the music video for this. Oh, well, you'll have to watch it right after this. <laughs> okay. Um, I did actually, it was... It was interesting. I saw 
I read quite a bit of news articles longer and more in depth, the better. I was just tooling around on the Apple News app recently, and they were covering um, Ann Lennox's uh, new art installation that she did. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of a retrospective of her as a person, not necessarily her work. Um, and it was just interesting to have that pop up because as an artist, she always does remind me of my childhood, probably because of the the space this story plays in the narrative that I've been told about that period of my life. And so just to see her, because she's in her 70s or almost 70. That's a great question. Let's find out. She's 64. <laughs> Sorry, let me repeat that. She's in her 60s now, and she's looking back at her life, and she's looking back in a way that I think is is almost elegant in that she's thinking about her work and her music, but she's also thinking about her children and all the people who have been in her life. And she, she included that in the art. The art itself is just a giant mound of dirt and it has 250 objects from her life in it. Um, obviously there's a piano on top because how can you not? But there's also things like her children's dolls that represent the relationship that she had with them and how that played into her life. Just interesting to think about that in context of how we're talking about that now. Mm, that's true. Uh, the idea of having an artistic retrospective of her life is kind of the project of this podcast as well, kind of doing an archaeology of each guest in turn. <laughs> so I'm curious, actually, I have two things I want to ask you about. And let's do the Annie Lennox one first, because we have been talking about her. Annie Lennox is known for having a connection with the LGBTQ community and in part, it's because, I guess, she's always had a very androgynous public appearance. She tends to wear her hair closely cropped. She tends to wear suits, men's clothing. It's really funny because the video for this song in particular, it's very femme. Like, she's in a big dress, which I guess is a bit of a departure from her Eurythmics look. Um, was this at all anything you were aware of? Obviously, when you're three, no. But when you're a little bit older, I'm sure that you were still hearing a lot of her music. Was this something that at, at all appealed to you or was that you noticed about it or no? No. I mean, again, I've not really – I've listened to her music for quite a long time. Um, and my mom was a very large fan of her. But I did not really have a good sense of who she was outside of the music, which is definitely something that is probably going to be a consistent theme throughout this uh, podcast. Is that there are songs that I relate to, but I'm not always – super engaged with the artists behind them. Mm -hmm. So I didn't necessarily know about her as this crazy androgynous LGBTQ force, but I did know about her being adjacent to the LGBTQ community, even though she's not necessarily in that community herself. And that is because, again, so I've heard this story, I do not know how many times um, about it being the first song I ever danced to. And as I got older and my mom was trying to kind of give me subtle hints of, hey, I, by the way, I'm pretty sure you're gay, that may have come up countless number of times. So your mother kind of had a clue before you did. Everybody had a clue before I did. Like, literally everybody. I told them, they were like, oh, thank God, we can stop hiding it. <laughs> I'm curious what you were like as a child. You were like three when you were dancing this song, but let's bump it between like your earliest memories up to like, I don't know, your preteens. What were you like? By all accounts, I was a relatively quiet child. I was well, very well behaved, um, which is why certain portions of my later life 
are interesting to compare to that. But I was always a well-behaved child. You were an Eagle Scout, weren't you? Well, that came much later. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Eagle Scout happens at 18. Usually. I did not I mean, know that. We have a different scouting system here. <laughs> okay, so the the earliest you'll get Eagle Scout is like 12, but those are the like genius children slash people who have overbearing parents and will shove them through as fast as they possibly can to be like, my kid is an Eagle Scout at 12. Okay, Becky, fuck off. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Eagle Scout is actually closer, usually closer to 17, 18, because it just takes a while to get there. But yes, I was, um, I was in Scouts um, as a Cub Scout. I started when I was six, so that was actually back in Oregon. Um, I did all sorts of team sports throughout my younger years, and then those kind of petered out. And when I was 10, I started Taekwondo, which, by the way, if you want parenting advice... Martial arts is far better than Boy Scouts. Mm. Why Why is that? I had a long argument with my husband, Dylan, about this recently, actually, since I've done both, and he's done both. Um, I was trying – one of the things I was arguing about is that Scouts is very prescriptive, um, especially in the way that it does morals and things. It's very U.S. religion-driven and things like that. I've always – even when I was a kid, I took a bit of – I took a bit of umbrage with the fact that in the scout law, they have reverent as the 12th point, 12th and final point. Um, and they try and frame it in this, like, well, anyone can be reverent, even if they're an atheist. And then they shove, basically shove Christianity down your throat. So I've always kind of viewed scouts as a little bit more prescriptive and a little bit more assertive in the values that it tries to teach and how you express those values. I've always viewed Taekwondo, even though it's an, a collectivist it comes from a collectivist society at um, taekwondo is korean um and but typically asian cultures have been more collectivist than the west and the west is more individualistic i've always felt that taekwondo at least the way that i was exposed to it was more individualistic in that it kind of inspired creating a good moral fiber but teaching the individual how to find their own morals and their own path and view what is right that way, rather than saying, this is what is right, do this. And so I've always found that to be a little bit different. Also, I think part of what makes me me today is my perseverance and my willpower. And 100% hands down, that came from Taekwondo, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And scouting, scouting, all it did was throw up obstacles in my path on the way to get what they told me that I should be aiming for. But in a very disingenuous way, not as like a, here's an obstacle for you to overcome. It was, here's a scoutmaster being petty or requirements that aren't quite right. There was a lot of bullshit and it definitely, I wouldn't say that it made me cynical, but it did give me an awareness at a younger age than I probably would have liked to about the ways that the world can be negative. I find it very curious. I'm reflecting this to my own life now. When attempts to indoctrinate a child backfire and they actually become the way through which the child becomes more critical-minded about the structures of power that they've tried to be indoctrinated into. And you're saying that that's one thing that we share a little bit? <laughs> I think that is something. Uh, I've always thought of it. I, I, went, I grew up in a very Catholic place and I went to a Catholic school and I butted against it very hard. I do not like being told what to think. <laughs> <laughs> so uh it, i think that actually is what taught me to be more critical and it sounds like that's something similar to you so 
it was just such a negative end, especially, especially towards the end. It was very, very negative. And it just kind of, it drove me away and made me really just not care about anything that they tried to impress upon me, especially as, as I had this very individualistic and very positive experience from Taekwondo where they made it extremely difficult. Getting my black belt was not an easy task, but it was something where they gave you all this difficulty and then gave you as much assistance as you needed to do it yourself. So your next song has to do with your teen years. And we've been talking a lot about things that you were doing as a teen, scouting, taekwondo, etc. So why don't we get on to it? What's the next song we have? So our next song is Waiting on the World to Change by John Mayer. Now we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. So we keep waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. So what's the memory that you have associated with this song that made you choose it today? The first song actually was was a memory that I've been given. It was the first time my mom ever saw me dancing as a child. This song was one that I was, it's a memory that I have, but it's also related to my mother in that it's the first time she ever heard me act, sing along to a song in the car. How old were you? Uh, probably about 15 or 16, like sophomore, junior year of co- uh, high school. You'll forgive me for saying that seems rather late. You didn't sing along to things when you were a child? I, I did tell you I was a rather quiet child. <laughs> That is rather quiet. My connection to music is probably a little bit less outwardly stated than sure, sure. other people. And there's also been the, lots of things like, I hate the sound of my own voice. So if I can hear myself, I don't like to hear me sing. I have no rhythm and no harmonics. And singing is not necessarily something that I do as an active task. It's more if the song really gets to me, I might just end up singing along with it. I can infer from that that this song probably did get to you. Mm-hmm. So what's up? Uh, what about this song appealed? Well, and also I think it has to do a little bit with the, the timing that it came around in that I was becoming less quiet. Definitely not a outward uh, extrovert by any sense of the imagination there, but I was becoming more comfortable with myself during this time period. I would imagine that the reason that it resonated with me at that specific time period is a lot to do with the fact that high school is a miserable, god-awful time of your life. Um, And I don't think I've met anyone who is out of high school who really thinks of it differently. It is very strange that we've always been told, or at least I've always been told, that all your high school years are golden years and you'll look back at them throughout the rest of your life and like, no, my God, I'm so glad they're over. (laughs) Oh, God, I didn't. I never heard that. Most people are like, you just have to get through high school and then it gets better. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And this was before I was like anyone knew or even really like thought I was gay other than tormenting in high school. So it wasn't like people were like, it gets better. It was just... Like, it gets better for the gays. It was like, no, high school sucks universally for everyone. Just focus on getting through it and you'll just be okay. So you just told us that no one knew you were gay. However, you had told us earlier that everyone around you knew other than you. (laughs) So I feel like, uh, how old were you when you came out, when you realized? Uh, 20. 20. Okay. Right. I I can actually give some really fun elaboration on this now. Please do. So let's go back to fifth grade. The end of the year party, little event space in my hometown, had pool, had an outdoor pavilion and a dining hall and 
all these things. So they'd throw the like end of the year parties there because it was cheap and it was close and you could bus everybody in yellow school bus and have a nice little fun field day. And so this memory comes in, I guess it was the end of the day and it was like sweltering hot. My, one of my friends, and again, quiet kid, I only had like five friends. Um, one of my friends said something like he was feeling warm or something. And so I, I definitely said, Tom's hot. And for some stupid reason, because kids are evil and awful and horrifying, um, everybody started teasing me about being a gay for that completely random comment com- taken out of context. But so that was like people er, teased me mercilessly for like the entire bus ride home. And I think that was when I decided, well, okay, fine. If everyone's going to tease me for this, I'm just not going to be that. I'm really good at convincing myself of things and molding my personality however I feel like. Um, and I guess for the next 10 years or so, I managed to hold up that um, charade. So, yeah, so I didn't really come out until I was 20, probably likely because of that. Several guests I've had have said similar things. I'm thinking about uh, the guest I had right before you, Andres Orrica, who similarly kind of grew up in a very Catholic uh, family, and he just didn't want it to be true, so he just told himself a false story that he wanted to believe uh, that, you know, he wasn't gay. And uh, I've had, had other guests, Anthony Oliveira says something similar, also very Catholic background. Um, in this case, it was sort of divorced from religion. It was just good old fashioned American homophobia <laughs> that sort of led you to repress or convince yourself. Repress isn't even quite the right word. It's you convinced yourself that something that was false was actually true. However, that implies that you had some base level understanding. There was something you needed to talk yourself into. There was some original position. If you need to convince yourself of it, it means you're starting at a place where you suspect it might be true. So you need to back away from that. I mean, I think at that point I was almost too young to really understand it. I mean, 10 is a little bit early to be confronting your own sexuality, especially in terms of actual, like, physical interest into other people yes do you remember having crushes on people in high school of the other gender any gender not really Mm. i mean partially i think that was because i had basically just tamped it all down and been like nope i mean again i am really good at i wouldn't say deluding myself but i'm very good at consciously making a choice and then adhering to it even if it's not right so i'm thinking about this john mayer song And it actually is a song that is about how messed up and wrong the world is. And the story you just told me is a great example of how messed up and wrong the world is. (laughs) (laughs) Because you were basically, well, let's let's be blunt. You were bullied into um, basically neutering yourself psychologically for, you know, your teen years. When most people's sexuality is blossoming, you kept yours locked in a closet where it couldn't you couldn't engage with it in any meaningful way, let alone learn to enjoy it. And that's something that you were bullied into, mm-hmm. which is gross. <laughs> I mean, it's fairly par for the course for middle school, elementary school, that whole 10 to 16, 18 range, though. I mean, kids are horrifying to each other. Like, I've talked to teachers since then who teach middle school, and they're just, it's, it flabbergasts me how children can be so mean to each other in ways that make adults on the internet look tame. And I live in some of the darker corners of the internet. 
when you're singing along to the song, you're like 16 or something. And this song is sort of politically aware to a certain degree. It is largely a song of complaint about the ways that our society is unfair and the people in power are oppressive and cable news convinces people of harmful falsehoods and all kinds of things like that. Is this something that you were turning over in your own head when you were a teenager? Were you getting into ideas of social justice, not in the way that it's understood on the internet now, but more generally? I would say I was aware as, as aware as most people of that age range were in that time period. Definitely not the way that kids are engaged today. God knows. I mean, they're more engaged than I am now as an adult. So definitely not the same as kids today, but I would say I was reasonably aware of what was going on in the world. I don't know. When you're in, in high school, things are presented to you a little bit more neutrally than they are in college or in the adult world. So I guess I was less aware of just how horrible the world could be. Although I guess that leaves room to say, was I unaware of some of the beauty in the world? And um, the answer is probably. So, I mean, I think, I think I definitely got what the song was about in that sense. But I think the reason that I was emotionally reacting to it in that way had to do with just the time period of my life that I was in, where it really did feel like I was just waiting to get out of high school. Like I had friends and I was generally happy. Um, I mean, my parents were incredibly supportive. I had a lovely sister. I had a very safe and secure childhood and teenage years in my hometown. But it really felt like I was just kind of stuck there waiting for something to happen and for me to get out. And I mean, I knew I knew what was going to happen. I was going to graduate and I was going to get the hell out of that town and probably not look back if I could avoid it, um, which is exactly what did happen. But the song really spoke to me in that moment of I'm just stuck here waiting. I want to move on with my life. Yeah, that's actually the thing about the song that struck me as most curious, because it is not a song of revolution and revolt. It's kind of like, I, I believe there's a, a line, something along the lines of like, um, the game's unfair or something like that. It basically is coming from the point of view of like, things are bad and the people in power are awful, but the only thing we can do is sort of wait it out, which is very much the condition of the high schooler. <laughs> high school is basically a jail. You have like no real autonomy over your life. You don't get to choose what you do with your days. And um, all, you all you can do is wait. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and I think, so I, I related to it in one way as a teenager waiting to get out of high school, but as an adult now, but a younger adult, a millennial, it really feels like the song, and I guess John Mayer would probably still be considered a millennial, even though he's on the older edge. The song kind of feels like it's saying, well, we're basically just waiting for the baby boomers to die off so that we Absolutely. can have control of the levers of power in the States, which is what's happening now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can see this in election after election after election. The younger people are starting to vote more, and they're resoundedly rejecting baby boomers. And so as an adult, I look at this song and I go, uh-huh. Well, that's what he was saying. But as a teenager, I think I took a, a much different, more personal message. You said it. I didn't. But I had it in my notes, waiting for the dinosaurs to die. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't think of politics in that way and not have, as a millennial, not be like, well, you're just waiting for the boomers to die. Please, God, Mitch McConnell can't be immortal. He's got to go at some point. <laughs> yeah, but don't Turtles live for fucking ever. <laughs> that's true. We've been talking about how you basically had to keep yourself bottled up when you were in high school and whatnot. 
And I know that your next song is very much kind of an explosion. Do you want to move on to it? So our next song is Slut Like You by Pink. Pink is probably my favorite or one of my favorite artists of absolute all time. She just really speaks to me in a lot of ways. And not just this song. So many of her songs really have been things that I would sing to or I would dance to or just resonated with something inside of me. Um, And the memory associated with this song is not one very specific memory, but a collection of them. Um, And it's also related just to this album. But so my third year of college in the spring semester, I was basically having one of the best times of my life I've ever had. I was dating my now husband, Dylan. We were living in the same suite, if not the same room in our college dorm. I was in college. I was loving my classes. I was going to the gym all the time. Still, I was going rock climbing with friends um, and so the memory associated with this is, I think it was every Thursday was date night. And so uh, I would do dinner with Dylan, and then we would go do partner yoga. And then we would go, or I would go, get in the car. And I had my grandmother's 1996 bright red Sebring convertible. And so I or we would get in the car and drive down the highway to next town over to go rock climbing usually with um my best friend rachel i would just blast this album at top volume with the top down just flying down the highway at like 80 miles an hour just absolutely loving life Mm -hmm. and it's it's definitely i think one of the reasons i picked this song in that memory is because of the contrast that it presents so we're roughly five years later five years down the road from the last song and it's just it's a complete and utter 180 of where i was and where i am at these time period of this song we've heard all about how you basically had convinced yourself that you weren't gay when you were fairly young and then you just sort of held on to that until basically your college years and you've told us in this story that you were dating the man who's now your husband people might be surprised to know that your realization that you were gay basically came via that and that he was your first boyfriend. Am I correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So why don't you tell that story? (laughs) How many hours do we have for this podcast? Oh, plenty. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you the, the condensed version. So I get to college and I had been signed up for one of the two honors dorms on campus. And I do the whole move in process uh, move-in starts on Wednesday, and classes don't start till the following Monday. And so the dorm basically encourages you to get to know everyone because 80 people out of the 100 in that dorm already know each other because so many of them are coming back from years before. And now Dylan is actually a sophomore at this point, and I'm a dewy-eyed freshman. And there are some there are some photos of me that you would not believe, listener, of how small and young I look. And so I meet everybody. And Dylan and I make this really great friendship already. And fast forward a few weeks, classes going on. Dylan wasn't necessarily out to everybody, but most of his friends knew at this point. He was getting more comfortable with it. So he comes out to me, and he also 
comes onto me. <laughs> he always laughs at my reaction because I'd been raised in a very tolerant household, even though I have this kind of bottling up of my own sexuality. My mom and my dad have always been very open and accepting of people. And my mom's favorite sister is gay, and she has been with her current partner for, God, like 21 years. So basically, as long as I can remember, she's always had a a woman partner, and now they're married, and it's lovely. And so my reaction to him coming on to me was like, oh, that's cool, but... I'm not gay, but I have a gay aunt, so it's cool. Yeah, he gives me um, gives me a bit of guff for that to this day. He apparently really liked me, and I was pig-headed and stubborn and locked in my own mental closet. And so eventually his best friend gives him some advice to just, just be my friend, because if you try and like be my boyfriend, it's not going to work, and you're just going to end up driving me away. So we spend basically the next year becoming best friends um, and extremely close. And we talked the whole summer, even though we didn't get to see each other on Facebook and by text and all of this. And then we get back to school and everything's hunky-dory and we're like best of friends and we're living in the same suite. We basically had easy access across to just hang out whatever we wanted, but we weren't necessarily in the same room. I've been lifting weights now since I was 16 and Dylan is known throughout the dorm for loving to give massages and being really good at it. Right around um, our birthdays, I guess it was the beginning of October, I go in and ask him to give me a massage because I had hurt my back deadlifting or I was sore from deadlifting or something silly like that. So I'm laying face down in my shitty Walmart carpet in my dorm and Dylan is giving me this massage and... I am getting rock hard into this carpet. And so when he finally finishes, I'm just like, so I might have had a reaction. Again, direct verbiage because I get shit for it. Seven and a half years later. That was how I discovered, again, that I was gay. Dylan and I tentatively started dating um, very quietly, actually. I didn't necessarily want to come out immediately. Um, and so we gave it a shot for roughly three weeks, I'd say. Um, we had our birthdays, and he spoiled my plan. Since we are one day after each other, I was going to kiss him for the first time at midnight when we shared a birthday. And he totally spoiled my plan by bringing me a cake at 11.55 with a bunch of friends, and so I could not do that in public. So I kissed him the next day on his birthday, that was the first time I ever kissed a guy. I was shaking out of nerves, which is adorable looking back at it. I think I came out to basically everyone within about three weeks. Once I commit to something, I don't really hold back. Um, and that's pretty much a, a central theme of what it is to be Derek. I don't hold back. So that's an adorable story. And it's really funny to think about you shaking with nerves, kissing a guy the first time, because... You kiss a lot of guys nowadays. <laughs> Not as many as I would like, but yes. <laughs> so this Pink song is clearly about sexual liberation and um, being unapologetic about basically having sex with a lot of different people. I want to get your take on the politics of being a slut and owning your slutness and whatnot. Because to me, that's what this song is. This is an anthem of sexual liberation. <laughs> well, 
first, there's actually a really hilarious point I want to make first about this song. So I've been with my husband now for seven and a half years. We were monogamous for the first four years of our relationship. We both stuck to that commitment solidly. So there, there was no cheating, and I had had sex. Um, at the time that this song came out, I'd had sex with three people. There was a very brief period between when we first dated and when we got back together where I lost my virginity to two guys at the same time. So you were monogamous for four years. And I think this is something that a lot of listeners, probably more straight listeners than gay listeners, just because of differences in our communities, might find a little bit difficult to wrap their heads around. The idea that you've been basically with your college sweetheart your entire adult life, you're married right now, but you have sex professionally on camera and you do it recreationally with people who aren't your husband as well. You're no longer in a monogamous relationship. You guys are married, you're very much in love, but you have sex with other people as well as with each other. We're in a relationship I would describe as fairly open, even by gay standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, that, as I said, probably more straight listeners than gay listeners would have a problem with this, or not even have a problem with this, find this a difficult concept to wrap their head around, because it actually is quite common for gay relationships uh, at some point to begin opening up. I mean, it's not not all of them, because nothing is true for everyone all of the time, but it certainly is something that's seen as fairly normal within our community. And I think straight people find it very odd and uncommon. So if you want to hear some statistics on that, I believe the last time I looked, it's roughly 56% of all gay relationships at the time that the survey was taken were reported as in some way, shape, or form Mm non-monogamous. So, I mean, that can be something like they have the occasional threesome to what Dylan and I have where we're basically allowed to sleep with whoever we want to whenever we want to, so long as we're respectful of the other person. And so 56% of all gay relationships were considered some form of non-monogamous. And I think it was like 1% of straight relationships reported being non-monogamous. Did you have any thoughts about monogamy and things like that when you were listening to this car driving to rock climbing? You were clearly like in a honeymoon phase of your relationship, it sounds like. So, you know, you you may have been more than satisfied with just Dylan. Uh, But did you have any sort of ideas or opinions about this? I was probably still fairly open to it. I was exposed to Dan Savage at a very tender and young age because my sister has always absolutely adored him. But so I'd always been kind of exposed to him, and he's probably been the best champion of non-monogamous relationships or just non-traditional relationships, to be honest, um, in that there's so so much of a range that you can have. So even back then, I think I was open to it. But again, I was fairly – I would say I was extremely content – with my then boyfriend and also i lived in a small town called blacksburg in the middle of fucking nowhere with a very clicky gay scene i was not encouraged to explore all that much and i mean on non-monogamy in general the way i like to describe it to people who are curious about it is that i mean i am married to my husband but that doesn't necessarily give me the right to control his sexual agency He is a full-fledged adult. Um, He's perfectly capable of making his own decisions. And it's not necessarily fair for me to be like, I am the only person who can provide you with this. And that's my view. That's my belief. And it's it's not right for every relationship, but it's just how I view it. 
Yeah. I think a lot of people are curious about how issues like jealousy and so forth are dealt with because I think a lot of people put themselves in the shoes of, oh, what if, what if the person that I'm with like slept with someone who isn't me? And it's so upsetting to them that they can't imagine that it would not be upsetting to someone else. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how to answer that question because neither Dylan nor I is a particularly jealous person. We've definitely had some disagreements about this, but they've never dealt with the idea of jealousy of the other person. So like the the person that's not in the relationship that our spouse is sleeping with, they've always had to deal with kind of like feelings of being left out or um, ignored. And the answer to how we have dealt with that is by communicating. Like, And it's mostly been on my side, actually, because I have some very odd, weird hangups, like everybody. But it's it's come down to, like, there have been times where he's been off having fun, and I would be 100% welcome in that situation. But I don't want to be there. I want to want to be there, but I'm not really interested in any of the people that he's with. And so I don't want to go in there and have, like, a half-hearted, lackluster time, because that'll also feel really bad. And so the times that it's created friction points for us were where I felt like he was choosing them, choosing that situation over me and that I felt left out. We've gotten much better at handling that because we've sat down and we've actually talked about those situations in the aftermath. And I've been like, I don't want you to not do that because it clearly makes you very happy. And I enjoy it when you're happy, but I would like you to be maybe more sensitive about when you choose to do that. So why don't we move on to your next song? What do we have? So our next song is Immortals by Bob Boy. So, I know the real reason this song is here, because we are good friends. But I know it's a story that's not for public consumption. So I'm going to generalize a question here. So this is a song that you played once to give you bravery to do something that was scary. So I'm going to ask you, what are some things you've had to do that frightened you in your life? And why would a song like this help amp you up for it? I mean, there's lots of scary things that you have to do in life. I mean, honestly, my first bodybuilding competition was terrifying. Um, my black belt test when I was 16 was terrifying to me. When I was in college, I went on a travel abroad program. And part of that was that we had 10 days of independent travel. And I didn't really have anyone on that trip that I wanted to do independent travel with, like badly. And nobody on the trip was going to places where I wanted to go. So I just said, fuck it and went on my own. That required some bravery on my part. I mean, traveling to places where the next nearest person I knew was like 400 miles away. And so that required some bravery. And this song is just, to me at least, it's very much a song that is just about embracing the fact that you're awesome and can kind of do whatever you need to do. That's a useful story to convince yourself of. (laughs) I mean, in my life, I have very many times surprised myself with what I'm able to accomplish. I have set myself up with challenges that I was sure would flatten me, and I've managed to take hold of them. So I have two things in mind to ask you about. And I'm going to do them basically chronologically. Was deciding to do porn, applying to the studios, flying to your first shoot, was that scary? Not really. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people would find it scary, though. 
<laughs> yeah, but it was such a natural progression for me. So, I mean, I've been working out since I was 16. I've been lifting weights since I was 16. I'd always been a physically active person. Um, it took off like a rocket ship when I came out at 20. I was then able to appreciate the male body in a in a way that I hadn't before. And I kind of was like, okay, I really want that of like large muscular men, the type that gay men idolize. I was like, I want to be that. And I've always had memories of wanting to have a six pack because the underwear models have it. Mm. But I mean, what, what, you, what, you're, what you're describing could easily be achieved just with modeling. Having sex on camera is something that's a bit more, like a bit more intimidating. Modeling is, A, impossible to get into <laughs> unless you have the perfect look and live in either Los Angeles or Manhattan. And B, really not that lucrative, to be honest. When I started doing porn, I was in an open relationship at that point. I was living in Marathon, Florida, which is about halfway between Key West and Miami. It's a tiny, boring little town with a population comprised almost entirely of rich vacation people and the dirt poor people who live there and serve them. Imagine me as a young 20-somethings professional middle-class person living in that type of environment with really no one in my own age and um, education group other than the people I work with. Your then boyfriend was still in DC, so quite far away. Yep. There's no gay community there to speak of. I know all this because this is when we became friends, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like bored beyond all measure living in Marathon. And it really just kind of felt like, okay, I'm gay. Okay, I'm moderately attractive, at least by fairly objective standards. I'm in an open relationship, so there's no barrier there. I talked with uh, Dylan about it. And he goes, yeah, why not? I don't really see a problem. And so I applied. And it, it did feel kind of like a natural progression. At that point in my life, I was not afraid of being open with myself in that way. I was very comfortable showing off. Um, and, I, and I was so comfortable with my sexuality then. It really was not a, a scary concept at that. And then I was quite excited to fly to my first shoot, actually. It, was, it took a very long time. I started filling out applications in November. And by the time anything happened, my first shoot was on April 1st. <laughs> Funny. April Fool's Day. Uh, but it was real. It wasn't a joke. <laughs> yes, it was my first shoot. I flew out to Vegas um, mm -hmm. and had a lot of fun. So the other thing I wanted to ask was you already told us that your first bodybuilding competition was very scary. I find that interesting because what you've just described to me about how you were lifting weights when you were 16 and then when you came out at 20, you could appreciate the male body much more openly and that really sort of added some jet fuel to the process. And basically you wanted to have a bodybuilder's physique and you pursued it. And that seems to me like it would it would be fair to say that doing a bodybuilding competition was the natural progression. Yet that was the thing that scared you. I think it has to do a little bit with the competitive nature of it. Okay. I've never been a competitive person in terms of me versus other people. I've always been very competitive with myself and I've always wanted to improve upon myself, but I've never I've never been a competitive person in a way that would make me go do sporting competitions or things like that where I where you are directly up against someone else and that you wanted to beat them, you wanted to win. And that had been true for me for basically my entire life. I mean, I did Little League when I was a kid, and then I um, didn't really do another competitive sporting event until bodybuilding. I mean, yes, I played lacrosse in high school, but I 
chose that not necessarily for the competitive nature, just to have something a little bit more social to do and something that would be active and fun. I mean, the team I was on, we went three for 13 in my senior year because we are in the town I grew up in is smack dab in the middle of a bunch of rich white towns and lacrosse is a rich white kid sport. And we were not a rich white town. And so we absolutely sucked. I was going to say, it's, it's quite interesting that uh, bodybuilding and I suppose Taekwondo as well. I don't know. Taekwondo, you're often sort of sparring against someone else or what have you. But in bodybuilding, mo- most of the training is entirely solitary. And it really is you against yourself. Like 99.9% of the time. When you're on the stage is the only time you're really in- competing with others. And that was the only thing that really scared me. And I mean, I would say that Taekwondo and bodybuilding are actually quite similar, having done both of them. I mean, yes, Taekwondo has things like tournaments and stuff. But the training is still very much an individual thing. And, but it's also driven by your studio. So you have this group of people that you surround yourself with in your studio who are there to help you and support you and everything like that. And bodybuilding, while it's a very individually driven sport, it's impossible to do without a good support team. Like there is no way you were the person who actually convinced me to do this first bodybuilding show. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you. There are an almost countless number of people who support me in this journey. Um, I mean, my husband is very supportive and all my friends, both in the local area and in the digital space, all the friends I have scattered across the globe. But even um, my current employer is actually incredibly supportive. They love to hear about my story. They're very supportive about my diet. They never give me guff about it. Um, They're letting me take time off to go to Vegas to do it. So bodybuilding, while it's individual, is very much a team sport in that way. But yeah, so the competi- the first competition was absolutely terrifying. And it's just, it does all these emotions of like, am I ready? Am I good enough? Um, did I put in enough work? Am I going to get up on stage and make an absolute fool of myself? And plus, you're talking to someone who'd never actually been to a bodybuilding show before because there really aren't that many in any of the areas that I've lived in. So I'm dealing at the same time with all of these insecurities and fears of am I going to look like an absolute fool on stage mixed with the, I have no idea what I don't even know, which you, you were big on that when we were preparing for this of like, what do we know, not know that we not don't know. Yes. The things that we don't know that we don't know. (laughs) Exactly. And now that you've done it a bunch of times, we know many of those things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not all Um, of them. I mean, it, it changes show to show and as you get up on higher levels, but we're now much more confident in it. And people may not be aware of how, physically demanding that last bit of contest prep is you you really have to deplete your carbohydrates so you're just a zombie then you have to like drink loads and loads of water and then all of a sudden just drink no water at all i have a very strong memory of sleeping on your couch the night before your show your very first show and you had such a limited amount of water that you could drink because to you had to be very dehydrated to get that sort of shrink-wrapped look that's appropriate for the stage, which really only lasts a couple of hours. Your timing has to be perfect. Um, and I was awake on your couch, but it was the middle of the night. I woke up in the middle of the night, and you kind of trudged out of your bedroom. You went to the freezer, and you got an ice cube, and you put it in your mouth, and you went back to bed. Because you could suck on an ice cube to help alleviate the terrible thirst. Yep. <laughs> that was what you were allowed to do. <laughs> It does work. Um, it eliminates the sensation of thirst, even if it does not actually eliminate the thirst. Mm-hmm. My point is that it's a very physically demanding thing, which in turn makes the emotional and psychological challenge that much greater. Mm-hmm. It's definitely gotten easier. The first 
peak week that I did was an absolute nightmare. And I was just grumpy and grr and like my very worst self that whole week. Um, and the past two that I did were actually, I wouldn't say pleasant, but they were easier by a, a significant margin. The second one I did, I literally just like got up, went to work, did the work thing, got home, went to the gym, did the gym thing, went to the apartment, ate what little food I had and just played uh, Breath of the Wild for the entire rest of the night. I basically just stapled myself to the switch and was like, I'm just going to live in this little fantasy world where the rest of me doesn't have to. With the game as immersive as Breath of the Wild, you kind of forget about your body. You might <laughs> neglect to eat or drink, even if you're allowed to do as much of that as you want. <laughs> Let's go back to Immortals by Fallout Boy. You haven't really told me very much about this song in particular and the period it's from and what was going through your head because we kind of had to generalize it. So why don't we just talk about the shape of your life around that, around the time that this song is linked to? Um, so I was in my fifth year of college at that point, and it was definitely a more lonely period of my life. Um, Dylan had graduated. He lived up in D.C., um, and I was still stuck down in Blacksburg. Um, some of my friends had graduated. Some of them were also in the architecture program and were still around. But it was a bit more of a solitary period for me. This actually applies to the next two years of my life, really, because um, after I graduated, that was when I ended up down in Marathon all by myself again. I think this song being a stand-in for that period of my life is interesting because of the idea of using it as a, I can do whatever I want, I can get through this, I can push through this, I'm immortal type thing. And I think, so it's interesting to explore it in that context of, I can very easily set my mind to do something and really push through it, even if it's not necessarily the most pleasant thing. I was definitely a little bit of a heads down, get through this fifth year of college, get my architecture degree and get out of there. I mean, but by the time I got back from my travels abroad and uh, in Chicago at the end of fourth year, I was pretty much ready to be done, but I was like, I got to do this fifth year. And so it was definitely a little bit of a put your head down and just do your best and get out of there. I mean, it wasn't necessarily like the most lonely period of my time. I mean, high school was definitely worse than that, but it was a, it was a quieter period of my life at that point. Um, and Florida definitely felt like that as well. Um, that's definitely why you and I became friends. Um, I was desperate for human interaction. Um, and I met this guy on the internet and he was awesome. He shared all the like bodybuilding obsessions that I did. And but I could carry a conversation as well. <laughs> You would be surprised how rare that is over the internet. The ma many millions of started and aborted conversations that you have on things like Scruff or Grinder. So that song gave me is type the type of thing that would give me strength in that experience, and it definitely extends to Florida as well. Um, I had a very hard time getting a job in architecture out of college because I didn't really have any connections, and it's always much easier to find a job if you know somebody. Um, so I took the job because I got an offer based on an application I put in in a couple of phone interviews that I did. It was a very good offer at a very good firm that did very interesting work. And I was like, I am not going to get a better offer than this coming down the pipeline anytime soon. And so even though I had basically just been looking in DC because I wanted to move up with Dylan and he lived there, we talked about it and I took the job and moved down to Florida. I was managing it quite well. I mean, I had, if not a lot, I did not have very many friends down there, but I had, started to make online friends. I still had constant contact with Dylan and I was 
able to go visit him at least somewhat frequently. Um, I started doing porn and that gave me a bit more disposable income and flight miles to go up and see him. Do you find loneliness a difficult thing to deal with? Not necessarily. Um, it's not my first choice, but it's not necessarily the end of the world for me. I mean, there's a difference between being alone and feeling lonely. I mean, you can feel lonely with lots of people around you, and you can feel just fine by yourself. Mm-hmm. Give me a standard Myers-Briggs personality test. I actually come up ever so slightly on the introverted side by just a couple percentage points. So it's not necessarily that I'm uncomfortable being lonely, but given the choice, I would like to have companionship at least some of the time. So you've spoken about setting yourself very difficult tasks that seem as if they might crush you and rising to the occasion. And one of the more recent ones kind of ties into your last song. So why don't you tell us what the last song is? So our next song is Monument, the Inevitable End Version by Rooksop and Robin. I love this song so much. You actually like the other version better, though. Uh, they're both excellent. They have a very different vibes. And I think that they, they're, I have room in my heart for both. But one of the reasons I love it is because I have a very strong memory associated with you and our friendship and this song. But before we get there, why don't you uh, explain the period of your life around when this song represents? Because it links back to what we've just been talking about. Well, I think overall I'm using it as a standpoint for kind of everything post-Florida. It's my post-Florida period where kind of everything in my life kind of came back together in a fairly awesome way um, when I moved from Florida back up to the D.C. region with my husband. But specifically this memory is it's the song that I used for my last competition for my bodybuilding posing routine and this is the competition where I won. It's also the first time I did a competition. It was my third competition. It's the first time that I felt comfortable doing my posing routine on stage, where I felt like the whole thing just clicked, and it really felt like an expression of me in this sport. And I think part of that was that I had I had rejiggered the routine a little bit to be a little bit more bodybuilding, whereas previously I had actually leaned a lot into my Taekwondo background because that was what I was more comfortable with. But it it did not necessarily fit the idea of what a bodybuilding routine is. What is a bodybuilding routine? I bet a lot of listeners would not really know. (laughs) And what is the purpose of it? In the open class where I compete, you're given roughly 60 seconds to put together a routine um, set to music that allows you to showcase your muscles. And while there are definitely poses that you have to hit like mandatory poses that are just the best poses for showing off that particular muscle. It's an open program. So you're kind of allowed to do whatever you want. There's an artistic self-expression element, but the goal is to show off your size, your symmetry, your level of leanness and not necessarily your athleticism, 
which is what I had been leaning towards with the Taekwondo. And so there, I definitely incorporated the Taekwondo in because it's still a very large part of who I am, but I didn't make it the central focus. I moved more towards what you would be more commonly seeing in other people's routines. So what about Monument made you choose it for a bodybuilding routine? I mean, the, the simple answer is that it just felt right. I think the more complicated answer would have to do with my relationship to Robin and music and a little bit to do with my sexuality there. I mean, Robin, again, not necessarily like super gay, but she's in that sphere and she's a, an artist that is very popular and resonant with the gay culture. And it's, again, another artist like Pink who just kind of seems to speak to me in a lot of ways. A lot of her songs just hit that point deeper in your heart where you go, where it just feels like the music is talking to you and you in particular. And it was something where I was more comfortable, a, a period of my life where I'm more comfortable being out in gay spaces and where I tend to inhabit those gay spaces very happily, where I may not have necessarily before. When I was in college, there were not any gay clubs anywhere near Blacksburg. There were occasional times when I would be able to go out to a gay club in DC, but it wasn't really necessarily something that I did often. I was not living in, in those gay spaces. And so I was becoming more comfortable being in these scenes and listening to this type of music and dancing to this type of music and just being in that vibe. And so Robin kind of felt like a song that fit for me. I mean, this song in particular, I've always had a strong association with the practice of bodybuilding and the lyrics in that it is a song about physicality and the body as a monument that is being built and um control mm -hmm. well you are the person who introduced me to this song mm -hmm. <laughs> i had listened to quite a bit of robin before but i didn't actually know that this ep existed until you introduced me to it and i think you also were the person who recommended that i use it for this um which was an excellent choice <laughs> thank you <laughs> But I mean, I think part of the thing that makes Robin, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say exactly if there's one thing in particular that makes Robin resonate with the gay community. It's probably a lot of different factors, but a lot of her songs do have a sense of embodiment, like physicality to them, which one associates with gay clubs and, and the kind of music where you are sort of made aware of your bodily self which is also applicable to bodybuilding because it is all about the body and what you can do to your body through applying great effort and discipline over many years. Mm -hmm. I think that there's two reasons that Robin resonates um, with the gay community. And I think, again, definitely the, the embodiment and the body, it's what you described with the body and the way that it feels and the way that the beat moves through you and the way that you dance to it. It, it definitely feels of a particular place, and that particular place is a gay dance club. But there's also something, I think, with the, the lyrics that they're not necessarily the happiest of songs, but they're also not sad songs either. Dan dancing on my own and, and call your girlfriend, like, those are sad disco anthems, right? <laughs> but they have, they, they do have, like, a very happy undertone to them in a oh, little well, I mean. That, that, that is, when I say sad disco, I mean that. Like, the lyrics, well, actually, Call Your Girlfriend's not sad. Um, 
Call your girlfriend. <laughs> no, but that is definitely no. a fucking gay song. Oh, absolutely. But like uh, dancing on my own is like very it's it's sad happy it's like it's tragic you know what gay man hasn't sort of seen the person you have a crush on kissing some girl over there and have it like just break your heart a little bit but like it's also defiant and i'm going to keep dancing and i'm here in the club and i'm going to twirl around to this music even though i'm very sad inside like it's it's classic gay (laughs) well yeah and i think that that sad happy is kind of a, a classic gay thing it's lessening as the years go on and as, as we become less oppressed but i think that the history of gay rights and gay culture it really does embody that the happy sad and defiant all rolled into one glorious anthem mm-hmm. so throughout this talk we've here and there talked about various aspects of the bodybuilding lifestyle what it takes, particularly contest prep being incredibly grueling and difficult. And I bet a lot of people listening might think, well, it's kind of crazy to do all that. And they're not wrong necessarily. Absolutely not. (laughs) My question is, what draws you to bodybuilding? So I've always really been interested in pushing myself and bettering myself in a lot of ways. I mean, again, I started Taekwondo when I was 10 and it led into that. It led into me pushing myself to get my black belt And by that point, I was pushing myself in school, and I was pushing to get my Eagle Scout. And so even at a young age, I was really, I had this personality of just wanting to better myself. And I think bodybuilding just grows from that. I mean, I started lifting weights when I was 16 in high school, because we did a, we did a portion of it in my gym class that I was mandated to take. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, uh, to the point where I basically just took it up recreationally. And I just enjoy pushing myself and there's something very interesting about bodybuilding in other ways that you try and push yourself is not in that it's your body and you're basically only limited by your own potential at that point whereas a lot of things like in your job there's so many extraneous circumstances that hold you back because of other people or structural imbalances or things like that whereas with bodybuilding and weightlifting in general it's just Okay, did I lift more weight than I did last week? Yes. Did I push harder than last week? Yes. Um, And it's also easier to measure, especially if you're doing more powerlifting, which is where I actually started in my lifting. I was more of a powerlifter, probably because it's this very black and white of how much weight did I lift, not am I bigger than I was. It's not as subjective. Purely numbers. Purely numbers. But bodybuilding is not necessarily like – yes, it's a subjective sport, but it's less subjective than – most of the things you'll encounter in day-to-day life. You've also mentioned, though, that coming out is what sort of lit a fire under you in terms of bodybuilding. So there is like an aspect of sexuality to it for you. Oh, it's definitely, it's tied in with my vanity and my ego and my sexuality all in one whole thing. I would say that the bodybuilding is less of a sexual thing for me. Um, At least the, the competitive nature of bodybuilding is definitely just a, it gives me the impotence to push harder um that the sport portion of it is not sexual to me in the way that the training aspect can be and the uh just the general results day to day when you're not on a competition stage but you're just in the bedroom with someone and they really appreciate your body it it's kind of a turn-on like i have a little bit of that myself oh my gosh you don't say (laughs) (laughs) i would never have guessed mikey Mm mm-hmm all I mean by that is it's kind of like it's enjoyable to 
transform your body into something that you yourself desire. And it is also very enjoyable when a th- someone else gets turned on by what you've done to your body. Like there's an element of transformation, but there's also an element of just pure pleasure, which I wonder if straight guys quite get. <laughs> I mean, gay guys are incredibly lucky because there's that overlap between I want to be that person and I want to have sex with that person. And the overlap of that is it, it's very unique to gay people. and. I think it's it's kind of quite beautiful in a, in a ways in a lot of ways. One of the things I wanted to go back while well, we've still got a little bit of time with the idea of monument is you brought, you talked about it as you're creating your body and it's your canvas. And I think one of the other reasons why bodybuilding is so interesting to me is because that is probably the aspect of my personality we've talked about least um, on this. We've talked about the porn and the bodybuilding and the sexuality, we haven't really necessarily talked so much about architecture. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the thing that predates all of this or all of these. Like before I was a sexual person, before I was a bodybuilder, I wanted to be an architect. I mean, even from when I was a small child, I played with Legos and I wanted to make buildings. And I think that is one of the constant threads that ties this all together in that I like to create things, whether it be buildings or furniture or jewelry or sculpting my body or even making porn. I mean, the act of making things to me is probably one of the most central portions of my personality. And it's the thing that ties all of these aspects that seem so random for a person to be at the same time. It ties it all together. An architect who also is a bodybuilder, who also is a porn star, like how do those things fit together? It's all about making and creating. I think that's a great spot to end our conversation. What are you doing at the end of July? In exactly six weeks at the end of July, I will be on stage competing in the USA Championships for the NPC. It's a national level competition, which I qualified for by winning my last show. And I'm going into it kind of with the same mindset as I went into my first show. I just want to feel like I belong on that stage. And if people want to check you out online, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at DerekBoltXXX, because Derek Bolt is taken by a software engineer from Amazon in Washington, D.C. I'm sorry, buddy. And that is an NSFW account. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, You can also find my mostly safe for work account on Instagram, which is just Derek Bolt. And you can basically just Google me and you will probably be able to find me. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to Derek for sharing his life and music with us. This is your mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. And now we have a Patreon where you can help support shows like this one. Go to patreon.com slash megaphonic, and for as little as $2 a month, you'll be able to hear bonus material and get access to a members-only Slack. Kind of like a clubhouse. We also have a store at megaphonic.fm slash store, so if you like the logos of shows like this one and you think they'd look good on a t-shirt or a coffee mug, well, we've got your number. For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 36. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at Earl King. Well, the show is also on Twitter at This Is Your Mix. You can also email the show at mixtape at megaphonic.fm. I hope you've enjoyed today's mix. Onwards. <laughs> <laughs>